Welcome to episode 133 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux news. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, we've got some distro releases for Linux Mint and Puppy Linux. We've also got a follow-up for a topic about running Linux on Apple Silicon with a project called Asahi Linux. Linus Torvalds is in the news this week for some comments he made about Intel's policies over ECC. We've also got some great news from NVIDIA, for NVIDIA users and for the users who are looking for a way to do self-hosted live streaming thanks to PeerTube. We've also got some unfortunate and somewhat annoying news from the Cute Company to discuss, and then we'll round up the show on a good note with the latest release from Lutris Project. We've got all that and so much more coming up right now on This Week in Linux. Before we get started this week, I just want to take a moment to let you know about DLNlive.com. If you're not aware, Twill is live streamed every Saturday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern or 1800 UTC. You can join me each week for a special live edition of the show. We have conversations in between topics. We just have a great time overall live chatting about Linux. So if you want to join us, be sure to go to dlnlive.com. And also after each episode, we have a Twill After Show where patrons can join me on air for a weekly hangout. Uh, dlnlive.com is also not just a place for watching This Week in Linux. It's also a place where you can watch the live streams of Destination Linux. That's right. Destination Linux podcast is now streaming live every Sunday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern or 1800 UTC. Basically, it's the same time. Uh, there's a live stream for DLNlive.com on Saturday and Sunday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern or 1800 UTC. Saturday is this show, This Week in Linux, and Sundays is the Destination Linux podcast. And if it sounds like something you'd want to be checking out, then be sure to bookmark DLNlive.com and put it on your calendar to join me next week. Be sure to bookmark the, the URL, DLNlive.com, and I'll see you next time. Well, let's get to the show. First in the show this week is Asahi Linux for Apple Silicon. This is a project to make it make Linux possible to run on Apple Silicon. We talked about a previous effort of the uh, Patreon campaign that Hector Martin launched to make it possible to run Linux on M1 devices, and this is actually a project that came from that. So the 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 Patreon campaign was to see how many people were interested and whether or not it was worth making a project like this, and that was a very successful thing. I think within like a week or something it was over 900 contributors or uh, backers for the Patreon campaign and that sort of thing. So Asahi Linux actually comes from Hector Martin himself and is a project that is essentially born out of that effort for the Patreon campaign and that sort of stuff. So if you want to learn more about that, I'll have a link in the show notes for the previous episode we talked about it. Uh, but just to give you some references about like the experience that Hector Martin has, if you didn't, uh, if you haven't seen that episode, uh, he has more than 15 years experience porting Linux and running unofficial software on closed devices like reverse engineering. So he's like some of the highlights of that is that he's made possible to run Linux on the PS4, also the PS3, and even uh, made it possible to do uh, support for the uh, app, the Nintendo Wii homebrew ecosystem and that sort of stuff. Many other things as well, but uh, you can just check out the previous episode or the about page if you want to check out more, more about that. But uh, let's talk about what Asahi Linux is. So Asahi Linux is a project and a community with the goal of porting Linux to Apple Silicon Macs. So that starts with the 2020 M1 Mac Mini, MacBook Air, and the MacBook Pro. 
They say on their page for the Asahi Linux project that all Apple M1 Macs are in scope, as well as future generations as development time permits. Also, uh, they say that their goal is not just to make Linux run on these machines, but to polish it to the point where it can be used as a daily OS. And they say that doing this requires a tremendous amount of effort and work, as Apple Silicon is an entirely undocumented platform, because of course it is Apple's not going to help there. Uh, And they say that in particular, they will be reverse engineering the Apple GPU architecture and developing an open source driver for it, which is awesome. And they say that they expect that support will eventually trickle up and back down to other distributions uh, and, and be available to a variety of different distributions when they implement the drivers and the tools and that sort of stuff. Uh, they don't really have a like an ETA of when this is going to be possible, but they do say that it, it's, it's because there's no jailbreak required because Apple allows booting unsigned kernel cur- uh, custom kernels on the Apple Silicon. It's kind of a, it's a lot less of an issue than, you know, it would originally what people thought it was going to be because they say that the, that Apple put this as a feature into the hardware. So it's not like a, you know, a workaround. It actually is meant to be possible to uh, boot unsigned or custom kernels. Like, uh, so it's kind of, it, it is, and they intended it to not be locked down, but they also are not helping anyone make it possible to boot anything other than Mac OS. So it's, it's like, they're sort of trying to care, but also not caring at all. The Apple way. So they say that all the development will be open source on their GitHub. So uh, it'll be available to check it out. So anybody who wants to do that, uh, we'll have links in the show notes for that. I know a lot of people are you know, it's arguing that we shouldn't care about making it support Apple products and whatever is, you know, let them live in their own world. But I think I, I disagree with that because that uh, when you have this product and you have the popularity of the Apple products, if you don't have support for an alternative on that hardware, it means that that hardware is never going to be a way for us to convince people to use Linux. So if there's no support for Linux on that hardware, then there's no way for those people to ever get experience with Linux, even if they wanted to. So it's good that 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 project exists because it provides an option to those people in the future. And otherwise they wouldn't have that option at all. So it's kind of like, uh, I get why people don't want to, but I also appreciate the work that is being done because it makes it more, makes it possible for more people to use Linux. And I think that's just fantastic. So if you'd like to learn more about Asahi Linux, I have link in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have some unfortunate news that is uh, yeah, pretty annoying, actually. So we previously talked about in, a, in an episode of This Week in Linux that the Qt company was considering switching to a commercial-only license for their LTS versions of the Qt toolkit. Uh, the Qt toolkit is actually powering a lot of stuff. It runs cross-platform on different uh, operating systems. It also works on Android. So a lot of things use Qt, including a lot of stuff in Linux, like the KDE Plasma desktop uses Qt as a toolkit. And uh, there there are... The, int- the unfortunate thing is that Qt as a toolkit is a very good toolkit. It's, it's actually my preferred toolkit. That's why I use KDE Plasma. And that's actually not why I use it. There's actually many reasons I use it. You can check out the link in the show notes for the video of the top five reasons why I use KDE Plasma if you want to learn more about that. But Qt is one of those reasons. And it's, it's, an, it's interesting because their reasoning for it is that they're saying that they need to make more profitability for uh, because of the open source nature is not working out to what they want. And I understand part of what they're saying, but also it could be the fact that your prices are ridiculously expensive and that might be pushing people from not 
contributing and paying for licenses. Anyway, for those who don't know, it's like $5,000 or $4,000 or something like that just to get the lowest level uh, commercial option. And Anyway, and that's a, a reasonable thing for people to not be able to afford that for an open source project specifically, but also just in general, because that's a huge a thing to just have the ability to use an LTS version of a toolkit that you still have to do the work on to make the software. Anyway, so they announced the last year that they were going to be switching to a commercial license for the LTS versions, and we, they didn't actually say that there was a guarantee. They said that they were planning on it, but now they have announced that it has happened. So they did it on January 5th. They transitioned it to the Q, the Qt 5.15 to now be commercial only. So, um, yeah, that's happened. So they're also they're restricting it to only paying licenses for having access to uh, commits and future point releases. Everything that's currently available is still available, but the future releases will have that restriction. Uh, the, the someone from Qt says that with Qt 6.0.0 released and the first patch for Qt 6.0.1 coming soon, they say that it's time to enter the commercial only LTS phase for Qt 5.15. They say that all of the existing 5.15 branches remain publicly visible, but they are closed for new commits, with the exception being the Qt web engine, which has a third-party LGPL dependency, which means that they can't close it because legally they're bound to not closing it thanks to the, G the LGPL dependency that the Qt web engine has. Therefore, that's why they're not doing it. So they say that after the this, closing, they are now going to be cherry-picking what goes into uh, different repositories that will be available only for commercial license holders. There has been some constructive criticism, and there also have been some uh, not-so-constructive criticism happening throughout the, uh, the week you know, based on this announcement. This has been uh, particularly controversial to developers outside of the Qt company who've contributed to the Qt toolkit. So they actually wrote code for the toolkit but are not employees of the Qt company. But so their their work will remain open, but they'll no longer have the opportunity to develop for it uh, for the Qt project, which is really really weird decision that they made. They decided to do this. So uh, a lot of people are asking questions about what the, how does this affect uh, KDE and KDE Plasma and that sort of stuff. Well, we did actually have a developer from KDE comment on this, although he's not representing KDE itself. This is more of like his personal opinion. He says that this may actually be a problem if all goes to plan. Qt 5.15 will be released in May and, and Qt 6.0 in November. And that means we will likely get up to Qt 5.15.2 or 0.3, and then that's it. Then we're moving to Qt 6 uh, because they wouldn't have access to the future uh, 5.15 LTS, which means they're going to have to jump to a non-LTS version. And there's an issue there. Uh, because only half of the modules for Qt 5 are available in Qt 6 so far, and they might actually have 6.1 might end up having uh, ABI breakage. So this switching for this commercial, so it's not like it's not completely closing the source for Qt. It's making it closed for people who want LTS versions of Qt. And uh, yeah, in the chat, NecoJet says that uh, it's what a mess. And uh, yeah, I totally agree with that. So there are people who are, you know, trying to figure out what to do. Some people are suggesting forking it. And that's not really a practical thing to do because Qt is such a huge project. It Forking it is not a simple task. Uh, you know, it seems like a, an obvious solution, but it's a very big task. And it, 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 because it's not completely closing the source, 
it may not be necessary to fork it. So it's it's definitely an interesting thing. And it's also will probably be a reason for people to shy away from Qt and use other toolkits, uh, which is unfortunate because Qt is a great toolkit. It has a lot of flexibility. It works on multiple platforms and operating systems and all that. So it is actually good and therefore very disappointing that they decided to do this. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this particular announcement from the Qt company, I'll have links for uh, you know their, their announcement and as well as some people's feedback related to it in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have something interesting to talk about because it's been a while since we had uh, Linus Torvald's rant to talk about on the show, but that ends today. The Kernel Nader is back, this time railing against uh, Intel for their bad policies over ECC. By the way, thanks to Reddit user uh, JB Jot Singh for the Kernel Terminator mashup. In a previous episode, we talked about how Torvalds made a public switch to an AMD Threadripper after 15 years of using Intel hardware. And months later, he then said that he's very happy with AMD these days. And he went into a lot more details for one of the reasons why, and that is relating to ECC recently. So he says that uh, Linus commented on AMD's Epic server uh, processor line where he said that they uh, you do pay more for that privilege of having that, that, they, that line, but at the least AMD doesn't try to screw you over and limit their non-server parts so you do get ECC for Threadripper and plain Ryzen 2 even if it's not necessarily officially verified. So let's talk about what ECC is. So ECC stands for Error Correcting Code Memory for it's related to RAM. Uh, It acts as an extra layer of protection to prevent memory errors also known as bit flips. Now they these are kind of regarded as extremely uncommon to happen but with so very few desktop motherboards support ECC, it is kind of uncommon because people don't have the statistics to see how often it happens in the first place. So uh, Torvalds has blamed Intel for killing the ECC industry with uh, bad market segmentation, uh, bad and misguided policies over ECC. He says, as an example, he pointed out that uh, Intel shipping multiple generations of hardware prone to row hammer vulnerability without providing a fix the entire time. He also uh, pointed out that some misinformation was being pushed around the not needing ECC. Uh, He says that he's actually been talking about this for multiple decades, even related to them, you know, trying to say that it's not necessary. He he did say that AMD did fix this. So it's really interesting because people on, on Reddit were talking about how they have found uses for ECC. They said that I, that uh, one user, Nate Termer, I think that's how it is, uh, says that I found dozens of production servers that were on the verge of failing, and the only warning signs were that were there were ECC memory correction errors. And also, if you uh, have ECC RAM, then you can run a particular uh, command called edac-util, and it will tell you how, like, how many problems it will it has detected and that sort of stuff. So this is actually pretty nice because um, it allows you to use this thing to kind of detect whether or not your servers are failing and that sort of stuff. Uh, I'll have the, some more details and the links to those posts on Reddit in the show notes. But um, it's interesting because uh, Linus says that you can find me complaining about this literally for decades now. And I don't want to say that I was right. I just want it fixed. I want ECC. AMT, AMD did it. Intel didn't. So this is something that he's been talking about for a while, and I didn't know that much about it until this news came out. Uh, but it does seem like something that should be there, a way to, uh, you know, an early warning system to see about mem- memory corrections, errors, and that sort of stuff. So 
it's weird that Intel is adamant about it not being worth doing while AMD did implement it. Anyway, it's interesting. If you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have links in the show notes below for you to check it out. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform service is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. It's a simple, intuitive, and visually ex- rich experience provided through their, u- their UI, and it also has a lot, gives you the opportunity to rapidly build, deploy, manage, and scale apps. It has support for Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, and Docker. It also offers high scalability and zero infrastructure management. What does that mean? exactly well you simply point your github repository and let the app platform do all the heavy lifting for you you handle the infrastructure by they they provide the services for this infrastructure like app runtimes and dependencies so that you can just push code to the production and in just a few clicks and have it automatically set up as well as securing your apps automatically because they create manage and renew your ssl certificates for you and also protect your apps from ddos attacks you can run code with little to no customization because the app platform uses open cloud-native standards and automatically analyzes your code, creates containers, and runs them on Kubernetes clusters. And as a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free and actually better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform service. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is the latest release of 20.1 for Linux Mint. So this is a point release, which means that it's uh, bug fixes, polishing, application updates, that sort of stuff. They save the uh, rebasing of the new versions of Ubuntu and that sort of stuff every two years, which is like the 19 to 20 or 20 to 21, which will be happening in 2022. Uh, That's a a lot to say. Anyway, uh, that will be happening for the rebasing of Ubuntu right now. This is just point releases. Like I said, it's just for bug fixes and that sort of stuff. But there are quite a few things in here that I wanted to talk about that are pretty interesting, so I wanted to highlight those. Uh, First of all, I want to talk about the new IPTV player for M3U playlist, which is called Hypnotics. It supports live TV, supports movies and TV shows, as long as you have an IPTV provider. And they provide one that comes by default for free, which happens to be called Free IPTV. Makes sense. (laughs) So this offers uh, free and publicly available live TV channels and that sort of stuff. They've also done some improvements to like driver management because uh, they've have their driver manager is now migrated to package kit, which is really nice to see. Uh, a lot of distributions are switching to package kit for a variety of reasons. We talk about the uh, some of the good re- value of using package kit on the latest episode of Destination Linux, so be sure to check that out. Uh, also, I'll have a link for, for that episode in the show notes below if you want to learn more about that. But one of the things that really got me interested in this release is that they made a new application called Web Apps. Not a very creative name, but what it does is very valuable. So Pepperon OS has a tool called ICE. And there's also been, in over the years, been many, many efforts to make a web app type of application framework so that you can build your own web apps. And that's essentially what this is from Linux Mint. It lets you turn any website into a desktop app, which allows you to have a separate window for the particular app or for the web app. Also have icons specific for that. It will put it in your applications menu, uh, your panel, your alt tab selector, and that sort of stuff, and can even be pinned to the panel. And that's something that has been around for quite a long time, but 
oddly enough, every time that came it came around, there was weird variables that they didn't stay. Even though this is a very cool thing, and I wish we had have had this for years, and hopefully this particular effort will be more you know uh, distro agnostic. We don't know right now if it's just for Linux Mint. They haven't specified that or not. Uh, but like Peppermint OS is not built for uh, it's not Peppermint OS built ICE, but they didn't necessarily build it for you know pe- being used for everywhere. They they made it for their own. It's not like closed source or anything like that, so anybody could take it. But uh, it requires uh, repackaging it and containing it for different distros, which uh, some distros didn't seem to think that was worth doing. But I really want to put out a request to the community to somehow make a web apps uh, ecosystem, make it easier to build out these kinds of things, because it is very, very valuable for a lot of purposes. A long time ago, like 2012, there was a project called Fogger, and it was uh, you know basically pulling apps uh, from the cloud to your desktop. That's for like a, you know, like clouds on the ground is called a fog. Anyway, that's what it was named for. Uh, I actually participated and worked on in that project. So I was really excited when it was started. And unfortunately, it didn't last very long. So uh, I was a little bit disappointed. So I want the effort that this is hopefully turned into a full ecosystem thing that every distro can use. That would be awesome because there's a lot of great value in having uh, certain web apps being available as a specific desktop app. Like for example, Photopea would be awesome. Anyway, moving on. They also did some other stuff like improvements to uh, their audio stack. They've also made some changes for their login screen, as well as done some tweaks, styling, and UX improvements for various Mint apps, like the uh, Pix image editor, the Zed, I think it's Zed, I don't know, text editor. Uh, and the also, last one I wanted to talk about is the X Viewer document viewer can now configure behavior of primary and secondary mouse wheels. Right. So the reason I want to talk about that one is because I don't think I can recall a time where I've ever seen a mouse with two scroll wheels. So if you do use one of those, let me know in the comments below what it's called. And I want to check that out because I've never seen a mouse that did that. And that sounds pretty interesting. Anyway, so if you want to check out the latest release of Linux Mint 20.1, I'll have links in the show notes below. And also... Uh, just a request to the Linux Mint team, if you want to push out the web apps effort into a more global thing, uh, that'd be much appreciated. Uh, if not, if someone else wants to make a project for that, or Peppermint, Peppermint OS wants to do that, that'd be great too. I think that that has a lot of potential for a lot of value for a lot of people, regardless of what district they're using. So uh, yeah, links in the show notes. Last week, we talked about Slackware-based distributions, and this week, there was a release for another that I just had to cover on the show, and that is Puppy Linux 7.0 Slacko has been released, and of course, it's based on Slackware. So Puppy Linux is a very interesting distribution of Linux because it's it's very unique in how it works. There are multiple officially recognized versions of Puppy Linux, with Slacko being one of them, and these officially recognized versions are also... Uh, very different from other distributions that have different recognized multiple versions like that are official and like flavors and that sort of stuff because most distributions have 
a core base that's the same with different versions having different UIs, like different desktop environments and that sort of stuff. But Puppy, on the other hand, has a totally different base structure. So uh, Puppy Linux Slacko is based on Slackware, but there are also other versions based on Ubuntu and then Debian, and there's even one for the Raspberry Pi based on Raspbian. So it's very interesting in that case. Also, Puppy Linux is uh, a distro that has a unique structure of how it works because it uses a layered file system. It's uh, most commonly known as being a super lightweight distro, and and it is, but that's just one of the things that makes it really interesting. But instead of that, we're going to talk about the Slacko version of because we. If you want more information about Puppy Linux and you'd like me to go in more details about like what makes Puppy Linux cool, let me know in the comments below. Maybe I'll make a video about it because I do think Puppy Linux has a lot of cool features to it. But most of the people only look at it as being like a lightweight distribution, and that's kind of a minuscule reason why it's cool. It is it is that. It is lightweight, but that's not why it's interesting. Anyway, so this latest release of Slacko 7.0 has some big changes, including um, uh, various things for UEF, UEFI support. So they have ex experimental support for UEFI uh, booting. Uh, they've also got uh, improvements for uh, being able to boot on a local disk or a memory stick, which is really nice. But that's, that's built into their own uh, uh, Frugal Pup installer. They also have new boot options, which allows you to do uh, boot ISO files from the local disk or an external USB device, and also boot from eMMC drives and SD cards, which is very nice. And for those who are uh, you know looking for an old uh, architecture-based thing for 32-bit, the Puppy Linux Slacko does support 32-bit. Now, Puppy Linux is not known for being bleeding edge in any way whatsoever. So the Linux kernel support that they have for this particular release is 4.19.164 LTS. So you wouldn't expect the latest and greatest hardware support. So if you're wanting to use Puppy, keep that in mind. But uh, there's also a lot of other stuff and upgrades to like uh, the JWM, which is Joe Window Manager, has been updated to version 2.3.6. And also they have a change for uh, the ability to easily, more easily change out the kernel that you're using and that sort of stuff. So lots of cool stuff in this particular release. If you'd like to learn more about uh, Puppy Linux Slacko or Puppy Linux in general, I'll have links in the show notes below. And also, again, uh, if you want, to, want me to make a video about Puppy Linux and uh, you know the overall arcing concept of it and that kind of thing. Uh, let me know in the comments below uh, if you want that. Up next in the show, we have a great update for PeerTube. So if you're not familiar, PeerTube is a, a free, federated, decentralized way to do peer-to-peer -peer video. That's a kind of a complicated way to saying an alternative to YouTube that you can self-host. Now, this is PeerTube version three, and we've talked about this in uh, previous episodes on multiple occasions related to like what their roadmaps were and that sort of stuff. But this is the final release, or at least the initial release for the version three, uh, not necessarily final, but final in the production stage. Anyway, um, you know what I mean. PeerTube version three adds a lot of cool features, including something that is been very sought after by a lot of people, and that is self-hosted live streaming. That's right. So PeerTube version 3 has live streaming support, so you can now create live video using PeerTube's interface. You can start streaming with OBS, FFmpeg, and some other stuff. Uh, it has the ability for users to save replay of their live stream, also supports live transcoding for multiple resolutions, and also admins of a PeerTube instance can set a limit of created uh, live streams for per user or per instant basis. You can also do like duration for the limit, or you can limit the duration for a live stream for different users and that sort of stuff. 
So this is really, really nice to see. They've also done some really big improvements for the comment moderation on this version, which is great because version previous versions of, of PeerTube didn't have the best comment moderation in the sense you couldn't bulk delete. It was also sometimes hard to delete spam and sort of that sort of stuff. So they have fixed that in the latest release with version three. Comment moderation has added a page for the in the admin section to uh, manage video comments. So you can like quickly delete comments of a specific user. You can delete comments in bulk. You can also now delete notifications related to muted accounts and instances and that sort of stuff, which is also great. And they've also done a lot of uh, accessibility and UI improvements as well. If you'd like to learn more about this latest release of uh, PeerTube version three, there is quite a lot to discuss. That's why I only cover the highlights, but you can have a link for the, in the show notes to check out all the other stuff that they, they did with this big release. Uh, but yeah, I have to say, I am really interested in how to try out the live streaming aspects of PeerTube's new version, because that is something that a lot of people have been wanting a alternative that you could self-host to live streaming so you could do your own thing like that. Very cool. So I will definitely be checking that out. If you, want to, if you want to learn more, again, links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. So Bitwarden is a password manager. And if you're not familiar, password manager is a, is a software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. So how does it do that? Well, securing your online accounts is very important uh, these days, especially with the best practices is kind of complicated in the sense that you should have a different password for every account on every website that you sign up to. So of course that makes sense logically, but that also has a lot of effort to keep track of all those passwords. But with a password manager, you don't have to do that because Bitwarden solves this by providing tools to store all of your passwords in a password vault. It also provides other tools for auto-generating these passwords for you and even automatically filling in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do that either. And you can access your data across many different types of devices like your web browser, using mobile apps, a desktop application, or even on the command line. Bitwarden seals your private data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever even leaves your devices so you know that the only person who has access to your data is you. Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust because it is 100% open source software. That's right, 100% open source, which means the features and security of their infrastructure can be vetted and improved by the community. And they don't just stop there. They don't just stop by open sourcing and just be done. They also bring in third-party security firms to audit their code to make sure it is safe as possible. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And did I mention you can get started for free? Because you can't. But I think you want to check out their premium account because you get a lot of extra cool features and the cost for that premium account is less than $1 per month. That's right. For less than $1 per month, you get a one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator, which is a temporary one-time password tool, and so much more. So get started with your account by going to bitwarden.com slash DLN and make the smart move like many from the community have and sign up for that account. This gets you get peace of mind for your passwords and other sensitive, sensitive data while also supporting a company that truly gets open source. So sign up for their uh, less than $1 per month premium account because you, this way you can show them that, that you, you appreciate them you know, supporting open source and supporting the This Week in Linux podcast. And so go to bitwarden.com slash DLN and get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we have some good news for those who have NVIDIA graphics cards because version 460.32.03 was released recently. <laughs> 
and it has support for Vulkan ray tracing, which is fantastic. So this is supported on all of the platforms that the, uh, ray, the ray tracing API is available. The Cronus Group released the official uh, Vulkan ray tracing API, and NVIDIA 460.32.03 is the first non-beta release to use the API, which includes support for various different extensions like accelerations, uh, or ray tracing, uh, pipeline libraries. It also has other support for diff other different extensions for Vulkan specifically that has support for like uh, fragment shading and also uh, shading termination stuff. Uh, lots of cool stuff. Uh, and also they have uh, new support thanks to this driver, this latest driver release adds support for NVIDIA RTX A6000 GPUs. It adds a new default uh, disk cache location for the OpenGL and Vulkan shaders, which changes the default size uh, from 128 megabytes to uh, basically a gig. So 1,024 megabytes is how they laid it out, but it's a gig essentially. Uh, and also a lot of other stuff, including better support for apps that transfer data between uh, VDPAU video surfaces and system memory by improving the NVIDIA VD, VDPAU. The, the wonderful names, name scheming for these uh, projects, by the way. Implementation when using uh, planar and uh, semi-planar formats. Also, they have uh, done some stuff that's only for Linux users, like uh, adding support for reverse prime bypass optimization, which bypasses the bandwidth overhead of prime display display off offload and prime render offload under certain conditions and that sort of stuff. And it also adds support for R and R or Rander, depending on your preference, uh, rotation and reflection when using NVIDIA driven displays as a prime display offload sync and that sort of stuff. Lots of cool stuff. If you are an NVIDIA user, I'm um, sorry, you should check out AMD, AMD. But if 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 you are, you do have NVIDIA, then uh, yeah, you, this probably be very helpful to you. So uh, hopefully you, your distribution will have that support for you soon. Uh, it probably will be because most distributions do have updates to NVIDIA pretty quickly, provided that NVIDIA does the actual updates. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this release, I'll have a link in the show notes for the NVIDIA's latest uh, release for the 460.32.03 in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of Lutris, which has version 0.5.8.2. A quick note for the Lutris team, it's okay to go to 1.0 whenever you feel like it. Just pro tip there. Anyway, uh, Lutris is a great project, though. So for that, that was a little bit of a joke, but I do want to tell you, the Lutris team, that you thank you very much for making this because Lutris is fantastic. And for those who are not familiar, uh, Lutris is a, a free and open source software solution, like an all-in-one for games of different sources merged together in a kind of a game manager. But in addition to that, they also have a lot of other stuff for making it easier to run games on on Linux because they have this thing called runners. And this is a way to have configurations that are, for example, like when you have a Proton in Steam, when you activate Proton, some games just launch automatically. And sometimes you have to do uh, launch parameters and that kind of stuff. Whereas in some games that don't support Proton at all, it's still possible to run them on Linux thanks to Lutris because they have the runner system that does a bunch of configurations for you and sets that up automatically with different things not specifically for Proton. Well, they also, it does support Proton too, but it also does other stuff and they constantly make new and more run times for various different things, which is fantastic to make it possible for games that don't necessarily run on, on Proton could still run on Lutris, which is great. 
Anyway, this latest release has improvements for Wayland support. It also adds now, it'll download DXVK support when you start Lutris, which is fantastic. And they've actually added support for dev file extraction and support for something that is pretty interesting because I'm not sure how popular these are, but I have seen that people are you know, really interested in Flash games, but also Adobe Air games. And Adobe Air has been canceled for a long time. However, there are people who still like doing, like playing Adobe Air games. So Lutris added support for installing uh, Adobe Air games. They're still working on making the runtime, um, you know, better to actually function the games properly. But it's really cool that they're adding support for Adobe Air uh, because, well, I didn't know people still used it, but I start, when I started researching it, it turns out a lot of people do, stu, still like Adobe Air games. Uh, also, uh, they added support for GStreamer-enabled uh, Wine Builds, which provides better compatibility for games using a multimedia framework pri- pipeline called Media Foundation from Microsoft. So that's nice to see having support for that sort of stuff. And also a lot more, but uh, if you'd like to learn more about that, I'll have links in the show notes below so you could dig into these latest release of version 0.5.8.2. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, you can go to tuxedos.com slash contribute to find multiple ways to contribute like PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and others. So go to tuxedos.com slash contribute to do that. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to the DLN store at dlnstore.com. There you can find the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt as well as a bunch of other stuff, including a This Week in Linux t-shirt and many more. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness for me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux network, which you can find both of those at destinationlinux.network. And just a reminder, the show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 1800 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week by going to dlnlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for your weekly source for Linux GNUs.